You are listening to The Dish on Health IT, brought to you by Point of Care Partners, a leading health IT consultancy. Each episode will feature a rotating panel of senior consultants and guests who will talk about trends and innovations in health IT, while also highlighting how organizations can leverage these advances to solve their business problems. The Dish on Health IT host, Tony Sheath, and Pooja Babra welcome today's guest, Bob Catter, president of First Data Bank, better known as FDB. FDB's drug databases drive healthcare information systems that serve the majority of hospitals, physician practices, pharmacies, payers, and all other areas of healthcare, and are used by millions of clinicians, business associates, and patients every day. We'll talk with FDB's Bob Hatter about the growing number of clinical services being offered in the pharmacy setting, ways technology can better support pharmacists in delivering these additional services, work still left to be done so pharmacists can fill a bigger role in the care team, and finally, we'll discuss newer innovations like artificial intelligence. We hope you find today's episode informative and helpful. If you have topic ideas you'd like us to cover in future episodes, be sure to share them with us by emailing us at podcast at POCP.com or tweeting us at POCPHIT. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Dish on Health IT, where we invite health IT innovators and trend makers to discuss some of health IT's biggest news and most exciting milestones. Here at Point of Care Partners, we're a health IT consultancy where we work with stakeholders across the healthcare ecosystem and are viewed as an independent, objective, and trusted third party, kind of like Switzerland. I'm Tony Sheath, CEO of Point of Care Partners, and I'll be your host for today's episode. This is my first time hosting one of our podcasts, and I'm really excited to be here leading our discussion with today's guest, Bob Catter, president of FDB who I've known longer than I think either one of us cares to admit. I'm joined today by my co-host, Pooja Babra, PBM and pharmacy lead here at Point of Care Partners, and one of the most well-regarded industry experts on pharmacy standards, specialty automation, and pharmacy interoperability. Today, we'll be speaking with Bob about the growing number of clinical services being offered in the pharmacy setting, ways technology can better support pharmacists so they can operate at the top of their license, Work still left to be done to make the most of how pharmacists can play a larger role in the care team, improve access to care in rural areas, and best support patient care. Then we'll pivot to explore some of the newer innovations like AI that FDB is employing and how they're approaching this work. But before we jump into our discussion, I'd like to have Pooja briefly introduce herself and tell us what she's looking forward to learning from today's discussion. Thanks, Tony. So uh, as Tony mentioned, I'm Pooja Bhavra, PBM and Pharmacy Practice Lead for Point of Care Partners. Uh, My main focus is on strategy engagements for our clients, and really my work focuses on strategy, kind of the intersection of strategy, policy, technology, and standards. I'm really excited about today's conversation because you know, we, we've seen, we're starting to see so many vendors uh, in the pharmacy space really step up in terms of innovation and advancing um, the, the pharmacist, like really the expanding role of the pharmacist and just been following FDB for a while, you know, specifically what, what the company is doing and in launching the new e-prescribing platform and really focusing on patients. So really excited, Bob, to have you here and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Thanks, Pooja. Now let's meet our guest. Bob, please briefly introduce yourself, include a little about the path that led you to become president of FDB, and you can kindly leave out the part about which one of us had the most hair when we first met years ago. 
Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Pooja. Uh, first of all, thank you to both for uh, giving me this opportunity to speak with you today and, and be part of this podcast. It's exciting. And uh, Tony, you and I do go way back. Pooja, you and I, unfortunately, not as long. I'd probably flip the order if I could. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Tony, uh, as you, re- I'm sure, recall, we first met when I was with uh, running sales and business development for Relay Health back in the 2000s and trying to get this whole idea of e-prescribing launched. And uh, you were the overlord at Medco that had the keys to the kingdom in terms of tapping into eligibility and formulary information from Medco. And, uh, you know, this is before the days of RxHub or SureScripts or anybody, but um, it's hard to believe how far we've come as an industry since then. And, you know, probably how far we still have to go, which we'll probably talk about later. But, and then, Pooja, I've gotten to know you through your, your tremendous work at NCPDP, and we've done a little work, uh, our company with with you, which was great, et cetera. So it's great spending time with both of you. Um, I, uh, After spending a few years as a health consultant and then working in the healthcare delivery industry for a few years, made an important decision to join Health IT in the early 2000s, originally with a company called Medical Logic and then Relay Health, and then with FDB. And uh, to a certain extent, it's interesting that we've accomplished so much as an industry. Uh, back when we started, there was virtually no electronic prescribing. Now it's almost universal. We have a very, very high adoption of electronic health records, but still a long way to go. But uh, I've usually, uh, in my career, focused on the sales and marketing and business development side, and indeed joined First Data Bank in 2010 in that role and then just kind of took on more responsibility for product management at one point, and then general management and was named president in 2020. So it's been a great ride, uh, but I think uh, some of the best stuff is still to come. So, Absolutely, Bob, you're absolutely right. The best is yet to come. So let's get into the meat of this discussion. I know we at POCP frequently present our content, and even on this very podcast, about how clinical services are being offered in the pharmacy setting and are expanding. Maybe as recently as a decade ago, we thought of pharmacists as filling a prescription, drug education, and safety. These days, patients get, can get tested for flu or strep, get vaccinated, access chronic care management services, have the pharmacist prescribe certain treatments depending on the state, among a longer list of services. I'd like you to share your perspective on the clinical services being offered in the pharmacy setting. What are some of the most exciting developments so far? What is your view of the role of pharmacy? And where will we be in another five to 10 years? Great. Well, I think it's a great question. And, uh, you know, I guess I'll just start with the role of pharmacists. Uh, Working at FDB was a real eye-opener for me because we have, uh, I think, about 35 pharmacists on staff at First Data Bank, as well as a number of pharmacy techs. And... I was not really aware until taking this role of how uh, trained and how skilled those professionals are. And I think they've really always had this training and skill, and it's kind of been for years, this kind of undervalued and undertapped asset in the healthcare industry. And of course, their role just very significantly ramped up during the during the recent pandemic, or I guess we're really still in the, 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 the later stages of the pandemic. But uh, just to, to throw out a couple stats... Um, Pharmacists in the United States actually administered over 300 million uh, COVID vaccines uh, during the pandemic. And in addition to that, uh, in, in some ways, almost more surprising to me when I, when, when you know, someone on my staff provided these stats to me, 
they administered over 100,000 monoclonal monoclonal antibody treatments to treat COVID during that time, too. And I think uh, to a certain extent, the genie's now out of the bottle. You're not going to put pharmacists back in that role. As I'm sure uh, many, if not most of your listeners know, we also have a shortage of primary care physicians in this country, a problem that seems to be getting worse, not better. And so pharmacists with these skills uh, can take on more of the frontline responsibility. As you mentioned, Tony, there's legislation and regulatory action at both the federal and the state level. Uh, The state of Rhode Island, for instance, has a bill that allows pharmacists to prescribe PrEP for HIV patients uh, and PEP. And then at the national level, you have a a bill that the House has passed that aims to equip pharmacists to treat COVID-19, RSV, influenza, those kind of conditions. Uh, So, as I said before, I don't think you're going to put that genie back in the bottle. Um, And then I'll I'll just say, you know, some of my own observations since being in this industry. uh, We've partnered recently with one of the major pharmacy retailers uh, in a new initiative we're doing in DUR, which I'll I'll probably mention a little bit later. But that's given me the opportunity to spend a little time, you know, in, in what they call the back of the store, quote unquote, um, observing how pharmacists do their daily workflow and, uh, you know, at least uh, in, with this particular uh, partner, you know, we see these pharmacists interacting with patients in the medical record or at least in their, their version of the medical record and really, you know, kind of providing care to patients uh, going really beyond that traditional role of just dispensing, which has been really uh, their primary focus, I think, up, you know, largely before the pandemic. Uh, And then finally, I want to mention a little bit what our neighbors to the north are doing uh, in Canada. There's a program, I think it's managed at the provincial level. I'm not a Canadian regulatory expert, but this program is called Minor Ailments. And what it does is it it empowers pharmacists to be able to treat, uh, diagnose, prescribe for patients for a set of conditions that they are deemed to be highly qualified to treat. And it's so it's, you know, interesting that our neighbors to the north with a very different system are looking at the same kind of thing like, hey, we've got this untapped reservoir of clinical talent and clinical skills here. Let's let, you know, they've got their own issues in terms of shortages of physicians, et cetera. So let's get these people more to the front lines to help patients. So we see this as growing. We actually think that trend is likely to come from Canada into the U.S. We're, as a company, actually investing in solutions to help pharmacists take on these roles uh, as well. So I, I think I'll stop there. But, you know, as you can tell, I think this is a, a very mo- major and important trend and one that's going to keep gathering steam. Absolutely. We agree with you 100 percent. And I love the way you frame that genie in the bottle. We're not going to put the genie back in the bottle. And I also love the way that you highlighted how pharmacists were sort of, you know, one of the sort of heroes, you know, one of the the the, the players, you know, during the pandemic that did so, you know, that, that really helped this country in so many ways. Pooja. I bet you're dying to weigh in about this now. You know, you have I'm sure you have other observations that you'd like to expand on. So I'm going to let you go from sure. here. Yeah, so I, I agree with everything Bob said. Uh, you know, I think it really was the pandemic, right, that that kind of put us in the, in this in this area. Uh, I think we were taking baby steps, right, to have pharmacists do more work and to be able to be part of the care team. But 
think it was a pandemic that really highlighted that. So, you know, just one thing to add to, to that, you know, as um, we mentioned, you know, I, I was prior chair of NCPDP, and it was during my term as chair that we also recognized that, you know, really it's bringing the pharmacists in is really helping to coordinate care, right? And, you know, they're the ones that are likely seeing the patient more often than the doctor. You know, they're probably seeing them on a monthly basis for them to at least pick up their prescriptions. So what else can they be doing? And I think, you know, starting with vaccinations, you know, having them being able to do the the test to treat, all of that is great. I think that, you know, the piece that I think I struggle with is, of course, reimbursement, right? So, you know, we're still unfortunately paying the pharmacist to, to put the pills in the bottle. So there has to be some movement there, but also the technology. So I think that's where, you know, I'm excited to hear that FDB and others are, you know, bringing that technology into place to really allow the pharmacist to do that. But yeah, I think that, you know, seeing this trend and I think we're, we're just starting to see it. And I think we're going to see more of this going forward, which is really exciting. Yeah, it, it really is. Let's expand though a little bit on the pharmacy clinical services that we've been discussing and think through the data needs for services to be successfully offered and how technology can do a better job of supporting pharmacists and operating at the top of their license. Bob, tell us how you're approaching assessing the data needs of pharmacists at FDB. Well, you know, at FDB, we're, we're a data company. Data is in our name. So that's, uh, you know, that's near and dear to my heart. I mean, I think the data is out there. You know, some of it's data kind of created by companies like First Data Bank, but it's, you know, largely created through doctor, patient, and pharmacist patient encounters. And it's it's not so much whether or not they have whether the data exists that they need, but it's probably more around uh, the interoperability and how that's all going to work. And then I also think, but maybe even before you get there, there's a little bit maybe more of a fundamental step: is that most pharmacists work today in a pharmacy system that was designed really to do a couple things. Uh, and when I'm talking about in the, in, the, in the retail pharmacy setting, you know, one thing is obviously to do real-time claims, adjudication, reimbursement, collect the patient, excuse me, patient copay and all that, and that's important, as well as to do pharmacy DUR. I'm going to get back to that in a minute, but uh, that's an important set of patient safety checks that needs to happen before you hand over uh, the medications. But what those systems aren't really designed to do is support more clinical workflows. So, you know, a series of questions to maybe diagnose or to treat, uh, prescribe, that type of thing. And so uh, really there are two ways we can go. I mentioned before being in, in the pharmacy portion of one of our partner stores where they were actually using a medical record application. I think that's one way to do it. And we know, uh, we're aware of, of Epic Systems, the, the large EHR company working with several of our clients, but um, they're either going to need to put in, I think, some sort of medical record adapted for their workflows, or they're going to need to build that functionality into the pharmacy systems themselves. Because this is, you know, if they're going to do volume work, we know enough, you can't do that on paper and really support that at scale. Uh, so I think the pharmacy systems, the core systems on which they do their daily work are going to have to change. And then it's really just around interoperability. Um, so being able to see the data coming from other systems around, you know, what are the patients? What's the patient's med list, the allergies, the, the problems to name, you know, quote the big three, uh, as well as send information back and forth. I think that obviously standards, I know you both, including particular Puja, you know a lot about those standards and how important those are actually 
I think both of you have been really involved in standards, uh, Pooja more with NCPDP and Tony with HL7, if I remember correctly. Uh, but obviously, implementation of those standards uh, are going to be really, really important, as well as incentives, I think, are really important. So that's, for instance, where the 21st Century Cures Act, which really creates almost a disincentive to silo information, becomes important uh, because it's not going to work if these pharmacists can't have access to the patient information they're going to need. Uh, so I think that we've got a ways to go there. The good news is it's all technically feasible. It's just that the players have to line up and, and really get behind doing what needs to be done. I think, Pooja, I want to go back to something you said about reimbursement, because I think reimbursement is really, really important. I think it will happen. Uh, and I, when I say reimbursement, I know there's already a fair amount of reimbursement in place for medication therapy management, and that's good. And that is a valuable service that pharmacists can provide. But I'm talking really reimbursement for something a little more fundamental, just as you know, some sort of a treatment or prescribing encounter that typically payers would reimburse a primary care physician for. And I guess I take a little bit of hope uh, when you've been in this industry long enough, maybe you've seen what, what can happen. So way, way back, right around the time when I first met you, Tony, uh, I was running, as I said, sales and business development for Relay Health. And back then, in addition to driving e-prescribing through the system, our mission was around e-visits uh, or e-consultations. And at the time we started, there was not a CPT code for an e-visit. No major payer was actually even contemplating reimbursing them. And after a few years of really hard work, and I, I used to tell people it felt a little bit like going, you know, trying to go in through the revolving door to the department store or whatever, except you're trying to go back. It's going backwards. And, uh, you know, payers just weren't necessarily set up to reimburse for new benefits because it almost felt like it's going the wrong direction for them. But I think when you showed them data and you said, hey, overall, this is better for patient care and maybe it saves cost overall if they can have access in this different way through an e-visit. This is a good thing for you. And over time, a lot of the major payers, Aetna, Cigna, many of the major Blue Cross Blue Shield state plans uh, came to agree with us and did put reimbursement in. And I think now we look back and it's almost unthinkable that e-visits wouldn't be part of our system. And and doctors or other caregivers wouldn't get paid for doing them. So I think there's hope. Uh, but I think it's, you know, I think payers are just going to have to kind of start thinking about pharmacists as a vital part of the caregiver community and, and you know, kind of reimburse them fairly for, for their efforts. Yeah, totally agree. There's definitely, you know, when I think about the community pharmacies, right, there's this CPESN, which is, you know, the community pharmacy network. They've been doing it for years now where they've been able to do contracts with health plans. And I think just kind of, you know, in the work that we do where we talk with health plans are very interested, right, in being able to work with pharmacists. But the question is, you know, how do you share patient lists? And to your point, how do you actually get the pharmacist that, you know, the medical records, the information they need in order to do that? So, yeah, definitely lots of, lots of hope around yeah. that. And is, so. is there experimenting with new payment methodologies and risk-sharing modules now? Having this additional care, you know, putting myself in their shoes, it's even more complexity. So that's yeah. like, great you brought that up, Pooja. I'm not, I hope it didn't come off like I was beating up on them or anything. Yeah. It's, it's hard. Uh, yeah. I just think it's yeah. something that, that's necessary. It's going to have to happen. Yeah. And I love that you, you know, go back and show other examples that have worked that, that because, you know, we don't just make things up. A lot of times, you know, 
precedents, you know, from the past, you know, we reapply. And so I love that you brought that up. Pooja, you're a member of the high tech subcommittee on pharmacy interoperability. Is this something that they've been talking about or what are the, some of the things that they've, that they've been discussing? Yeah, it's it's funny because I think, you know, as we were prepping for this, right, the question came up, you know, when we talk about pharmacy interoperability, what are we talking about? And I think, you know, for, for that group and, and just to frame it a little bit differently, it's it's really getting pharmacists the, the information they need, right, in order to do some of these expanded services. So the high-tech committee, um, you know, we did focus a lot on that. Um, you know, Bobby brought up the, the pharmacy system. One of the big topics that came up at the at the committee was, you know, they're they're not certified systems. So even if we wanted to get pharmacists onto, you know, uh, for we're talking about Tesco, right? And and you know, do, rolling out the Q hands and you know having providers being able to access the patient data through Q hands. Well, if a pharmacist isn't using a certified system, you know, technically they can't actually, you know, get that information unless they log in through a portal. So that was a piece of it. But the other is just, you know, what patient information does a pharmacist need and how do we get it to them? And I think that my favorite example to use was during the pandemic, you know, the, the, the heart of the pandemic, we gave pharmacists the ability to prescribe Plaxlovid, right? And we were all cheering, that's great, you know, they're able to do that. But when you actually dug into it, they could only prescribe it if they had access to the patient's lab results for their kidney function, right? And so a lot of pharmacists, you know, when they heard about that, they said, you know, we, there's no way we can do that, right? So I think the recognition that it's, you know, we have to get pharmacists the information they need for the patient. And then, you know, some of the questions are, well, they don't need the whole patient record, right? Of course they don't need that. They just need that information that they need at the time to treat or to prescribe, you know, the pieces of the patient record. But today, uh, you know, to Bob's point, the systems that are set up are not necessarily set up to get them that information. So a lot of the discussions, a lot of the recommendations we made were, first of all, around certification, but then also, you know, let's start talking about how we get pharmacists the information they need, which is, you know, really kind of what we're talking about today too. So Bob brought up NCPDP and HL7 and our participation in both of those standard development organizations. Let's talk about that. And are those standard development organizations supporting what you just described, which is reimbursement, getting information to the pharmacists, the right information at the right time, and what are they doing? I'd actually like to circle back for a minute. So another important enabler of pharmacists, we believe, is helping them do their so-called day job better. And right now, Tony and Pooja, as you both mentioned, their day job historically has been around dispensing medications and doing the DUR, drug utilization review, and the safety process around that. And we think streamlining that process and freeing them up to really practice higher up in their license can be very important. And we've partnered with one of the major pharmacy retailers to roll out uh, a program that we call FDB Navigo. And what that does is rather than approach DUR from a traditional standpoint of providing alerts in all the different domains is we work with that pharmacy so that every time a patient goes to receive their med, we receive from the pharmacy a summary medical record from their system that flows through the cloud into our system. Our system then evaluates 
uh, and sends back uh, really three things. One, a, a very brief clinical summary of that patient and what it believes is the most pertinent issue or set of issues. Secondly, a recommended action, either fill this prescription as is, fill this prescription and counsel the patient around some aspect, for instance, to separate when they take this medication from another medication they're on, that type of thing. Or third, and this is much uh, more rare, but third, don't fill this prescription and contact the prescriber because we, we potentially see a, a pretty serious clinical issue such as a QT interval prolongation challenge or something along those lines, which could be really dangerous to the patient. And then the third thing, in addition to that recommended action step it provides is supporting documentation. So if the pharmacist indeed does call the doctor back, the system will provide information that the pharmacist can discuss with the doctor around what is the clinical issue, maybe what is the recommended step that, that they'd like the doctor to consider, and and if appropriate, even what are alternative medications the doctor might want to prescribe that to treat the underlying condition that uh, don't have some sort of safety issue. So we have been working with this retailer. We've rolled that out to several thousand pharmacies now. So a couple million times a day, our system is providing that type of approach to DUR. I think saving pharmacists a lot of time, a lot of effort uh, in their daily workflow, which I think importantly frees them up to get to this other set of clinical services that that they can move into. Where they can work at the top of their license, as we were discussing earlier. That, that's really exciting, Bob, exceptionally Thanks, exciting. We're, we're very excited about that. Let's talk a little bit about standards development. Bob mentioned the fact that, that we're active in NCPDP and HL7. Bob, I know you're active in, and FDB participates in both of those standard development organizations as well. You know, what are they doing to support what Pooja just described as a need that pharmacists have today? Well, I, I, I guess the first thing I'll say when talking about standards with someone like Pooja is you need to stay in your own lane and know who knows who actually knows a lot about this. And who knows a little bit less. So let's start with that. Um, but here's what I here's what I can tell you. I mean, I think they're trying to do a lot, but it's it's not always just the standards. Sometimes it's the willingness or the desire of the players on both sides of the chain to to actually communicate through those standards, but. I think, uh, you know, what I can say is that First Data Bank, as you said, we have people on our staff, you know, I think we have kind of a, a small army of people that go down to NCPDP and participate in the development of standards for that. Uh, our e-prescribing network, Pooja that you mentioned earlier, FDB Vila, we're, of course, extremely dependent, and uh, we work very closely with those NCPDP standards for transmitting prescriptions uh, our exchange, eligibility requests, all that. So that's extremely valuable. Uh, and I think that supports part of it. And then, you know, we're also very involved. So for instance, with our Medication solution, which is a patient adherence platform meant to provide better information on why and how to take uh, drugs from a consumer standpoint, we use the FHIR standards to pull information out of and put information back into EMR. So I think we're more, you know, we do have people that sit in the bodies and provide a lot of input because we're out there trying to actually make them work. So I think it's an, it's really important. Pooja, I don't know if you have, uh, I don't know, I'm not, probably not as expert as much as what those bodies are doing to specifically support pharmacist clinical services. So maybe I'll defer to you on that one. 
Yeah, yeah, and I think I think I, you know what Bob said is is again kind of spot on. And and just to add to that, it you know what we recognize at NCPDP is of course the standards are there, right, to move the data back and forth. But there's also now a need for for kind of workflow, for innovation, for care coordination. So um, I know at NCPDP they started a new work group. It's uh, work group 20 focused on care coordination. And what we're looking at are things like. ADT notifications, right? So admit discharge transfer. So that's, uh, it's not an NCPDP standard. It's actually HL7 and direct trust, but it notifies today a provider if a patient's getting discharged from the hospital or being transitioned to long-term care. And so we're kind of advocating, right? We're, we're putting together some recommendations for industry to say, shouldn't that also go to a pharmacist? So at the top of the, the, the podcast, we talked about the rural communities. And if you think about it, you know, there's so many people that live actually closer to a pharmacist than a provider. And so the pharmacist ends up somewhat playing the role of a provider. So even though it's not necessarily tied to a standard, what we're saying is let's take an existing standard that's out there that's being used for providers that we could then expand to pharmacists. So if you're a pharmacist and one of your patients that come to you regularly is getting discharged from the hospital, you would want to know. You want to make sure that, you know, they can come in and do a med rec. You want to know what they're being discharged with to make sure you have the inventory. You may even want to stop if they're on a, you know, a regular cadence of refilling the medication and you get notified that they're, you know, in the hospital or in a long-term care facility, you know, you can work with that provider and that facility to say, hey, you know, how can I help you? So those are some things that I think the standards development organizations are doing. Um, so, of course, we have the standards, but now what can we do in order to to really support some of the pharmacists in these expanding, uh, you know, expanding their 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 clinical services and their support and in care coordination. I love that you bring up innovation. Yeah. And, you know, Bob, I know that FDB is is a really innovative organization. I've always known you guys being, you know, being that way. Let's talk about artificial intelligence, whether it's natural language processing or generative AI. How is FDB using AI today? And what areas are you exploring and testing? How do you set those priorities? Thanks, Tony. I think that's a, that's a, Great question, and I, I guess I'll start with, well, first of all, I'm really glad to hear you use uh, NLP, natural language processing, as an example of artificial intelligence and generative AI, because I think there's been so much in the news, uh, rightly so, about the kind of the breakthrough of generative AI and the large language models, et cetera, that people forget that AI and machine learning have been around and have been part of healthcare for years, in fact, for decades. And uh, so FDB, uh, we have had data scientists on board for a number of years, and we have been working with tools such as NLP. So the, the medication uh, solution I mentioned a few minutes ago, we use NLP in a couple ways uh, and have been, uh, but I'll just give you one example, which is one thing that medication is able to do is it's able to take a patient set of scripts through that fire standard from the EHR and kind of not only explain what all the meds are for, but also put all the meds on a, a universal patient schedule. And in order to do that, it needs to pull things from what's called the SIG, the SIG, the, the prescription instructions, and structure them. And uh, anyone, uh, Pooja, you can uh, appreciate our, our grief here. Anyone who knows those SIGs that are in, in, you know, kind of the EMRs all over this country 
Sometimes they're structured, usually they're not. And there, there are literally, uh, for some of the more common SIGs, hundreds of different ways doctors say pretty much the same thing. And so we've been using NLP to take unstructured SIGs, literally thousands of them, and put them into a structure, which then allows us to translate them into different languages and put them on a, a kind of calendar, a structured calendar, that type of thing. And uh, that's that's very exciting work. But I think Gen AI just kind of blows the top off of even what we've been able to do looking back, uh, you know, main, mainly because it gives people... You, you pretty much just need to learn how to write a prompt to now interact with the AI as opposed to really be a technical person. And so, you know, how are we approaching this? Um, one, we're training our entire staff on just that, how to interact with these tools. Um, there's good online and, and coursework available to do that, which we're going to be deploying. And then we really see at least today, and this could this could change uh, pretty quickly. If you ask me a quarter from now, I might have a little bit different answer. But at least today, what we're looking at is really three things that we're planning to do with Gen AI in 2024. And the first is we do a lot of data curation. That's the backbone of what First Data Bank provides to the industry. We take a lot of disparate information on pharmaceuticals and we put it into a standard format that the industry can depend on. And we have professionals curate that. That, let me be clear, that's not going to go away, but part of that curation are, we think, fairly manual steps that we think generative AI can do so long as it's monitored and governed by human intelligence. Uh, this isn't about turning it over to a generative AI. And then there are other things we do that, at least for now, we do not see generative AI being able to do in terms of clinical judgment around drug interactions and at what dose and at what, it, that, that gets very complicated, at least for the time being. We just don't see a role for, for Gen AI at this point. So that there, we think there are some steps that are pretty rote that we can leverage this technology for, but it's still governed by humans. The second thing we really think we're going to do with Gen AI is we have a lot of current solutions out in the marketplace that we feel our customers are going to expect they can use generative AI with. So Alert Space, for instance, which is a, a solution that is in use by hundreds of hospitals and other caregiver organizations all over this country to customize the medication alerts they see coming out of their system that are provided by FDB. Right now, we have a UI. You could go into the UI. There's a reporting UI. You can kind of look up specific interactions, uh, kind of look up information. We think you should be able to um, and, you know, please don't hold me. This isn't going to be tomorrow, but we think you should be able to relatively soon prompt, ask a question, almost the way you'd ask Chad FTB, for instance, you know, can you tell me about how this particular drug interaction alert is performing and what, how my clinicians are reacting with that kind of thing? You should be able to, rather than have to go through a UI and alert space to look that up, you should be able to do that through some sort of a Gen AI. So just enhancing our current solutions and then finally, uh, probably the most exciting frontier here is we think uh, there's an opportunity to partner with customers to develop new solutions, not necessarily solving new problems, although I think we're going to get to that. But even uh, we've done a little market research that tells us there are customers out there, retail pharmacy chains, health systems and hospitals, PBMs, 
our current customers are they're they're what they're saying, or at least what they're saying to these researchers is, hey, we want to work with experts to use Gen AI in a safe and responsible way to solve some of these industry challenges that we're all dealing with. Um, and I'll give you a couple of examples. You mentioned earlier MedRec, understanding the meds, the different way the meds are characterized in different settings, pulling that all into a coherent med list. That's a problem to a certain extent that's bedeviled the industry. Uh, we all know it has. It's still not done well, at least everywhere. And we feel like an LLM, a large language model, uh, can can you know help with that. I think another area that we think is is uh, ripe for innovation is authorization of medications, particularly specialty medications, for instance. A lot of the information necessary to get those authorized, to get the enrollment step with a specialty pharmacy completed is inside of the patient's EMR, but it's probably inside in a, and in many cases in an unstructured way. So pulling that out using, again, generative AI tools to pull that out and structure that, uh, we think could be very powerful, probably streamline that process, make it better for caregivers, and ultimately meaning that patients can get their, their medications sooner and hopefully a higher percentage of the time. So we think there's just a ton of ability to go build brand new solutions with customers to some of these problems that have been kind of weighing us down for several years now. Well, as a patient, I'm excited about getting my medications faster and getting medications for you know my family members and the people that I care about. And Pooja, I'm aware that you do a lot of work in the whole specialty automation space. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that and how FDB is using AI for specialty automation and enrollment. Yeah, I I agree. And so this is you know it's probably been a decade now that I've been talking about and kind of you know on my soapbox about specialty meds and how you know it's such an important thing and we don't realize how long it takes for patients to get on specialty medications, which is you know, there's no reason for it, right? And so, Bob, to hear that you guys are thinking about, you know, using this in order to pull out the data from the EHR, I think we've made some progress over the past few years, right? Of You know, there's an implementation guide, right? We talked about NCPDP and HL7, and that's one where we've collaborated between the two standards development organizations to say, you know, we know that on the pharmacy side, we can use an NCPDP standard, but what about clinical data? So, you know, you can pull out data from the EHR and, you know, basic data, right? Demographic data, allergies, things like that, send it to a pharmacy. But what about, you know, for this specialty med, you need, you know, this this lab result or you need this done, you know, this information from the patient note. So knowing that someone's out there actually thinking about it um, is great. And I'm actually really excited about it. You know, and you brought up prior authorization. I mean, just yesterday we had the CMS final rule drop, right, around prior authorization and automating on the medical side, but they specifically left out specialty medications. And part of it was because of the complexity and the overlap between, you know, specialty meds falling under pharmacy and medical. So it's kind of been this unique area that we kind of keep talking about and saying, we got to solve for it, we got to solve for it, but it's been baby steps. So uh, I'm really excited to hear about, you know, some, what you guys are doing at FDB and some of the innovation around that because it's so needed and it can be solved. That's that's how I feel about it. So great to hear that. Uh, I just want to respond to Pooja, your previous comments a minute ago. Wow. You know, it's it's coming. I really think it's coming. We're, we're not the only ones working on that vision. And I think it's a great vision uh, in terms of automating how specialty medications run through the system. 
So as we close out, we'd like to ask our guests if they have any final messages or calls to action that they want to send to the industry. Yeah, and I guess what I would say to that, so first of all, thanks again, Tony and Pooja, for the opportunity to participate in this podcast. I would just say almost like a call to action for people at the beginning of their career. As you can probably tell, I get pretty excited about this stuff. I'm coming, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit later on in my career, although sometimes I still feel like I'm at the beginning of, because there's so much more that needs to be done. But I would just say, in spite of everything we've accomplished as an industry, this EHR adoption, nearly universal electronic prescribing, I think the real power, the real impact for caregivers and ultimately for patients is still going to come. And that's really because the science behind this, the clinical information behind this is just continuing to advance at at a very, very fast pace. Things like pharmacogenomics, information more. We're just understanding better how to develop drugs, how drugs are metabolized and how they are effective in the human body. And then at the same time of that rapid science development, the technology, things like what we talked about before, um, AI, now generative AI, um, even just uh, you know the ability to use the cloud for the program I just described with FDB Navigo, the, the convergence of the science and the technology kind of just moving ahead at the rapid rate that they are, I think make this an incredibly exciting time to be in our industry. And I think ultimately this is going to result in, in great advances in terms of how patients are treated, the information clinicians, including pharmacists, have in kind of making those treatments and and hopefully ultimately in how effective those treatments are going to be. So I'm really excited. I would encourage anybody who's thinking about what should I do with my career? Boy, this is this is a great place to be. So I guess I'll just leave you with that. Absolutely. And Pooja, I know you're just as excited. Is there anything you want to add? I am. And, and you know, we started out this, this podcast with the story about Medco and Tony being at Medco. So, Bob, I was actually at PCS at the same time, right? So, so knew very, very familiar with when we started e-prescribing. And uh, I was just on a, having a conversation with, you know, someone I've known in the industry for about 30 years. And we said the same thing, like, we're so hopeful, right? Because there's so much, you know, we've gotten e-prescribing down, but what's this next thing, right? And I think having the, the pharmacist, you know, being able to practice at the top of their license, you know, all the new stuff that's coming down, you know, decreasing the the burden on pharmacists, really helping them with clinical decision support, bringing them as part of the, the care team. I'm actually very excited about, you know, the next five, five, 10 years. I think we're going to see a lot of innovation and just a lot of, uh, you know, exciting kind of moving the industry forward. So I think we're definitely at a, a place where we're we're kind of starting again, right? <laughs> it was like back then we were so excited to get e-prescribing and now we're kind of in this next phase, which I'm really excited about. So, It, it really is a fun time to be in this space and yeah. in this business. Yeah. So in closing, I'd like to thank my POCP co-host and pharmacy expert, Pooja Barbara, and to thank our special guest and friend, Bob Catter, president of FTB. A friendly reminder to new listeners that you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use to pick up your podcast, including Healthcare Now Radio. We also post videos of our podcast episodes, sometimes longer versions, on the POCP YouTube channel. And don't forget, Health IT is a dish best served hot. 
Is it a challenge to stay on top of interoperability regulations and the flurry of activity with fire accelerators? Email us at interopoutlook at pucp.com to learn more about our new interoperability outlook subscription monitoring service. 